This morning, we're continuing our series uh, on the ancient chaos, where uh, for the next few weeks, we're talking about the topics of sin and shortcomings. And we're looking at the existence of sin and the interaction and interface of sin uh, with the people of God throughout the Old and New Testament. So we're handling this series, if you haven't picked up on it yet, for those of you who have been here, we're handling it narratively. We're following the meta-narrative and seeing um, how sin is at work in the people of God at large, and then kind of whittling that down from time to time and seeing uh, what that means for us today and how it's at work in our soul and situation. So this morning, week three, uh, we're going to talk through uh, the presence of sin in the people of Israel, and we're going to be titling this morning's message, Sin, Terah, and the Nation of Israel. Sin, Terah, and the Nation of Israel. Um, But before we jump in, let's call upon the Holy Spirit and let's welcome him here. Because if he's not here, let's get real. What are we doing? (laughs) It's breakfast and it's coffee and it's cute, sweet conversations. But if the Holy Spirit's not here brooding over us and ordering our conversations and dwelling amidst us, then uh, we can argue that we, uh, to some extent, are wasting our time. So let's bring ourselves anew under the lordship of Jesus and welcome the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you once again, like we often do, if you're carrying something, uh, if this weekend has been riddled with stress or anxiety, uh, if something's gone sideways in your week, if you're stressed about school or family or uh, those nine jobs you applied for, uh, just welcome the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So the kingdom is here among us. Lord, we're nothing without you. That, that's just it. We, who are we apart from the ransoming blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Without you, Jesus, we... Uh, remain in our sin, and we are fallen, and we are fractured, and we are flawed, and we are hopelessly destined to a future without you. But thanks be to God that you came on our behalf. Thanks be to God that you ransomed for yourself a people so that you can call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light so that we may declare your praises. Thank you. God. Thank you for ransoming us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit. And thank you that every step of life that we take can be stepping with the Holy Spirit and be keeping in step with you and listening for you and discerning how you're at work in our lives. And the entirety of our lives can be marked by love and adoration and allegiance to King Jesus. So we say thank you for making us yours. And we pray this morning, as we study your scriptures once again, and as we break bread together, and as we discuss together, and as we commit ourselves for this next hour-ish to read your scriptures and to commit ourselves to what they say, we ask, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you instruct us? Would you guide us in the way of the kingdom? 
Jesus, you promised that the Holy Spirit would be the one who guides us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, we are asking, guide us into all truth this morning. Let the seed of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom go forth and let it be deposited on the good soil of our hearts. Make us sensitive, make us soft, make us malleable in your presence. And we ask that we would commit ourselves to do and obey everything that you instruct us this morning. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen, amen. So last week, we... um, We talked through the Garden of Eden, and we talked through this narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 about God ordering the cosmos. And there was creation, but there was ordering. There was this establishing of the things and the way that they ought to be. And we see Yahweh uh, taking creation, this chaos that is disorder, and making it Order And he gives Adam and Eve these commandments and he orders them and their calling and their vocation as his creation. Uh, He orders their identity around this practice of obeying what he says and uh, seeking the good life in obeying his commandments. And then we saw last week that Genesis 3 is the bottom falling out of it all. And it's this inauguration of the reign of chaos. And it's this act of Adam and Eve, this high-handed action of seizing the fruit. And yet in the seizing, they find that their own sin seizes them. And so Genesis 3 continues, and we're going to continue this narrative this morning where um, the bottom has fallen out. The promise of the good life is in shambles. The people of God are disenfranchised, exiled from the garden. And then it's a history and it's a narrative of disintegration. And it's a narrative where humanity starts uh, fracturing at its seams. Humanity starts uh, falling into idolatry and rage and violence. And humanity is absolutely fractured and flawed. And we see brother, uh, Cain and Abel, killing brother. We see these horrendous sins that are committed uh, over the course of the coming decades and centuries. But then... We know the story well. Uh, God uh, calls out Noah and he sends a flood as an act of judgment and as as a hard reset on his salvific work on the earth and a continuation even of that work that started in the garden. And then we get to this guy named Abram whose name is eventually changed to Abraham. And we see that he had a son, Isaac, and he had a son, Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become the patriarchs of this people of God. And God comes to Abraham and he says, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Is this ringing a bell to us? He says, through you, I will make a way for all creation and all humanity to know me, its creator. And through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the nation of Israel is born. And the nation of Israel finds itself in Egypt, eventually under the reign of this tyrant Pharaoh. We know the story. Moses comes up and uh, helps deliver the people out of Israel. But what happens here is that 
The people of Israel are in Egypt, and God takes them out of captivity and promises them, you know what, you're going to come out of here, and I'm going to take you to a land where you are going to walk out your God-given identity as the people of God. And so he ransoms them, and there's the, the splitting of the Red Sea, this act of deliverance, this act of salvation, and this act of the inauguration of their uh, true social identity as the people of God. And they're going en route to the promised land, which is the habitat, the ecosystem, the place where Yahweh was to uh, continue to shepherd them and continue to lead them. And this place where they would live out this identity as the people of God. But here we get to a turn in the narrative where en route to the promised land, God, that is Yahweh, if we're to call him by name, God gives them the substance of this identity. Uh, he explicates the bounds of where their identity as the people of God starts and where it crosses over into a life that he never intended them to live. He says, these are the bounds. This is the way that you ought to live. This is the good life. And he gives them Torah. That is the law. And he says time and time again, we see this uh, throughout the Pentateuch. We see the, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We see Yahweh saying, if you commit yourselves to the law, if you commit to obedience, if you commit to fidelity in me, then you will live uh, essentially the good life. There will be covenantal blessings on the table for you to feast and to partake of. And in this giving of the law and this giving of Torah, we see that Yahweh draws a firm line in the sand of the life that the people of God were intended to live and the life that they were never intended to live. Uh, we can say it this way, that Torah was the boundary line between the good life and the life of chaos. And in this giving of Torah, Yahweh once again says, if you heed my commandments, if you commit yourselves to them, we see this in Deuteronomy, when you tie them around your wrists and when you put them on your forehead and when you talk about them, when you lay down and when you rise up and when you're on the road, if you keep these words in front of you and commit yourselves to obeying them, then you can be uh, in, in, in a full sense, my people in route to the place that I'm going to give you. And we can start Start this covenant together, but it's a two-way street. I've delivered you. I've brought you in route to the promised land, yet there is still covenantal fidelity and faithfulness that you must uh, rise up to, and you must say yes to. Your allegiance must be in me. And so this good life is on the table for them to live, and this Torah, the obedience leads them to the good life, and disobedience leads them back under the reign of chaos that was inaugurated in Genesis 3, this high-handed anarchy and usurping of the lordship of Yahweh. Um, so this may have come up last week at your tables, but right now I want to specify real quick what we mean when we say the good life. Um, yeah, in our conversation, at least at the table I was sitting at, we very quickly started to pull the reins back and say, okay, but when we say the good life, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about money? Are we talking about reputation? What, what do we mean when we say the good life? 
Well, there's a specific framework that Yahweh really gives his people in a specific uh, series of definitions and blessings uh, that we can deduce um, means the good life and equates to the good life for his people. So one of these, and we're going to clip through just a couple passages referentially in Deuteronomy and some promises that, that Yahweh gives to the people of Israel uh, when we're talking about the good life. So the good life, uh, first thing I would say that we see in scripture is this, it's a life of wisdom. It's a life um, of uh, both rational flourishing, but also a wisdom to discern how Yahweh is at work upon the earth. It's wisdom in how we ought to govern our lives. It's wisdom in understanding uh, how our, our lives align with that of Yahweh. Another one is, is this, social stability. We see throughout the Ten Commandments, there is this element of social stability and equilibrium, that the people of God living by the law inherently uh, then live in this society that is hemmed in, that flourishes. Uh, Don't kill your neighbor lends itself to sociological stability. Uh, don't covet your neighbor's possessions and take them or steal. Those are things that just hem society in and ensure that the people of Israel are living in a stable and prosperous society. Another one I would say, and that we see in Deuteronomy, is long life. Another one still, and let's just clip through these, this list, Gabriel, is well-offness, if we're going to kind of make up a term here. It's just being well-off in life, being blessed in life. Another one that's existed in Deuteronomy is fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, another one is, uh, let's keep going, divine preservation and protection. This promise of Yahweh that he will preserve, that he will protect. Yet another one we see is righteousness. Uh, this flourishing in being obedient. This flourishing in being pure uh, as the people of God. Another one is the covenantal or the covenant love of Yahweh. That in obeying the commands of Yahweh... There is covenants, there is relationship, there is even presence, Yahweh dwelling with his people, not operating as some deity up in the sky that's wound up the cosmological clock and let humanity live as they see fit, but instead this God who is active and present and dwelling among his covenantal people. This is what we mean when we say the good life under uh, the framework of Torah, These are the blessings that Yahweh puts on the table and says, if you obey the law, if you obey Torah, then you can step into these blessings and the good life that I have ordered for you. In other words, all Yahweh's goodness and intent for creation can be summed up in this good life, in Torah. The way that he designed things to work, the way that he longs for his people to flourish. Uh, Torah was the first step in God's salvific agenda for the earth, for the people of God to live under and to live the good life. And so when it comes to Torah and Israel's faithfulness to or disobedience to, uh, really we see two options for Israel. And Yahweh makes it really, really simple. He basically says, you can reject my reign. You reject the reign of Yahweh. You reject the way that I've designed this life to be lived. You reject my cosmological ordering of the universe. Well, then you're forced to die in your sins. There's one way. There's one way that I've ordered the universe. There's one way that I've created life to be lived. And if you say no to that, and if you reject my reign in that, then you die in your sins. But there's this invitation. If you accept the reign of Yahweh and live the life 
it was supposed to be lived. This is the benefit of Torah. This is the way that Yahweh invites his people into covenant relationship with him. You have two options, Israel. Reject or accept the reign of Yahweh and uh, partake of the fruit accordingly. Um, and I know we're getting in the weeds here, but this will all kind of align here in just a second. Um, and it does pertain to us. So uh, by the time Israel gets into the promised land, they start to have this word for the good life. And by the time they begin to establish cities and the 12 kingdom or the, the two kingdoms and the 12 tribes, um, they begin to have this, uh, this definition, this word that sums up this idea of the good life and this life that God created us to live in and his people to live and flourish in. And do you know what this, what this word is? It's Shalom. This idea of shalom, this word of shalom. And I think when we hear the word shalom, um, you know, an, an easy definition that we may have heard of or that we operate under is just peace, right? Peace, bro. Peace, peace. You got But there's so much more to this word shalom than just merely peace in some existential kind of way. The, oh, I feel peace. This concept of shalom is the, um, the way that God intended life to be lived. It is total well-being. It is prosperity. It's peace in its, in its fullest sense. It's life the way it was designed to be lived. And to the Jew, all of God's goodness for creation, all of his intent for creation to thrive and flourish can be summed up in this idea of shalom, this peace, this reign of Yahweh, where when there is covenant faithfulness, when there is fidelity to the law, when there is allegiance to Yahweh, then there is shalom. There is well-being. There is order. There is social equilibrium. There is thriving and flourishing for humanity in the fullest sense. So let's talk through this a little bit. We got a discussion I want to kick to you guys, um, and, and here's what it is. How do you think the law and the promise of shalom relates, if at all, to us today as new covenantal believers? We're talking about shalom as the ordering of life as it ought to be. How does that relate to us as new covenantal believers? Go ahead, uh, chat about it for a few minutes, and then we'll pick this thing up in about 10 or 15 minutes. All right, much love and go. Okay, let's jump back in. So disclaimer here, I know that we're getting in the weeds a little bit, um, and I know that we're probably nuancing at our tables law and grace and old covenant and new covenant, and I think those things hopefully are, are somewhat clear at your tables, but even if they're not, in the weeks to come, we will talk more about that. But this is going somewhere, once again, anytime we, like, we, we talk extensively about the Old Testament, uh, I know it may be hard for some of us to linger there, but this is going somewhere. And, and uh, the big question now, after kind of this idea of shalom we've camped out on for a little bit, is, is the question of how does sin then interact with this idea of shalom? Uh, when it comes to disobedience to the law for the Israelites— um, what was sin uh, in this framework? Uh, I think sin sometimes we can deduce it to uh, God has some preferences and he has some ideas of the way that he likes things to be. And so when we disobey and when we sin, we're kind of just saying no to those preferences. And sometimes we understand it and sometimes we don't, but it's just this preferential God, right? 
who, like we talked about last week, is this micromanager who has to have things a certain way. You know, I better obey. But sin within this framework, the framework of Torah, the framework of Shalom, really takes on a much more profoundly um, destructive shape. Because what we see when sin interacts with shalom, we see something at play. And we see that sin is not an arbitrary offense toward a preferential God, but instead a culpable disturbance of shalom. And I'm borrowing a phrase from Cornelius Plantinga Jr., who's this um, freak of a theologian in the Old Testament. But Sin is not an arbitrary offense toward a preferential God. It's not like God's up there in the sky and he likes things done a certain way. And so when we sin, it's kind of this um, ethereal, uh, abstract way that we sin against his holiness. And we're not quite sure how that works. Instead, if we stay up there and talk in language like, well, God is holy, which he is, and God wants us to obey, which he does, it, at times it just stays... Um, uh, untethered to our day in and day out circumstances. God is holy, and so when we sin, what happens? Uh, it's just a conflict of interests, I guess. But when we talk about a disturbance of shalom, when we talk about sin as it interacts with shalom, we're talking about sin as something that is violence against God's intended order. And it's violence against the grain that Yahweh set up in the universe. And it's violence against this promise of the good life. And it's not some offense toward a God up there that we're not really sure what happens when he does that. I guess he gets mad when we don't conform to his preference. No, it's, the, it's, it's violence and war against the way things are supposed to be. This is what sin is. And the nation of Israel fell into this. The nation of Israel fell into idolatry and they fell into sexual immorality. Those were the two big things that we see throughout their history. And they uh, usurp the lordship of Yahweh and they reject it and they seek to overthrow it and they seek to take lordship over their own lives and for them to be lord of their own sexuality and for them to be lord over the day-to-day -day in and outs of their lives. They uh, continually sin and wage war against the shalom that's on the table for them. Uh, through this obedience of his reign. And so, so shalom being this good life, this intended order, and sin attacking that and being a judgment-inducing uh, violence against it, this radical no that Yahweh designed uh, life to be lived. And so uh, Israel uh, continues to sin. They, they fall into idolatry. They, they harden their hearts and rebel against the lordship of Yahweh. And then this is where things start to get dicey because Yahweh, century after century after century, is trying to woo his people back into covenant faithfulness. And obviously, we're dealing with something we see that goes far beyond just obeying the law. It, sin is at work in the human heart. Sin is an insidious uh, toxin that has invaded the human heart and is wreaking havoc on uh, humanity at large. And so Yahweh, in their disobedience, uh, lets them and releases them into exile and allows the Assyrians and the Babylonians to kind of overthrow the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. And he, uh, they get shipped off to exile and they're mourning and they're disoriented and they're thinking, God, why have you forsaken us? Uh, and then these guys called the prophets come around and they say, wait a second, 
God has not necessarily forsaken us in the sense that you're thinking God has let us uh, reap and eat the fruit of our own disobedience. Uh, This life in exile, this life in Babylon, this life in Assyria, these are the things that we have brought upon ourselves. This is the work of our own disobedience and infidelity to Yahweh. And the prophets really have this twofold message to Israel uh, in exile. Uh, The first one is a message of judgment, which we see. And uh, the basic prophetic message to exiled Israel is this, that Yahweh's shalom has been compromised and disturbed. That this sin that we have given ourselves over to, this sin of idolatry, these sins of rebellion, these sins that over the course of centuries, the the people of God, us, the tribe of Israel, the people who should know how to walk in the ways of Yahweh have uh, continually rejected the reign of Yahweh and we have compromised and disturbed shalom in the process. This good life is now in shambles because of the way that we have chosen to live rebellion against Yahweh and therefore exiled, taken out of the land that Yahweh has promised us and into the hand of the wicked. So this message of judgment, the shalom has been compromised and disturbed. We see this in the teachings and the prophetic message of Jeremiah and Amos and throughout these major and minor prophets. But, 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 There comes a time where the prophets begin to shift from the message of judgment and and offer a counter message of redemption. They say that Israel, yes, we like sheep have all gone astray, but Yahweh is doing something. The second part of the message is that Yahweh is making a way for his shalom to be uh, irreversibly, excuse me, and eternally restored. That though we have disturbed and compromised shalom, though the good life has been set on fire by our sin, Yahweh is making a way, even in our midst right now, for shalom to be irreversibly and eternally restored. And these prophetic messages came and they came and these prophets charged the nation of Israel's repent, repent, repent. Yahweh is doing something new. Get on the same page. Orient your life into what Yahweh is doing on the earth. Go back, come back to covenantal fidelity and allegiance because Yahweh is doing something new. And then centuries later, this Galilean rolls up on the scene And he starts claiming, uh, I am the good shepherd. And he starts saying, I am the door. And he starts saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he starts claiming the great I am statements. And he, he uh, goes and he teaches and he heals the sick and he raises the dead. And this Galilean who is disparaged among the nation of Israel, all of a sudden it becomes clear, wait a minute, this is the one that the prophets have been talking about. Uh, This is the one who the promise of the good life is fulfilled in. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. These seven I am statements. And in doing so, in his teachings and ministry, uh, Jesus says essentially that I am the shalom that was promised. I am the fulfillment of shalom. I am the incarnation of shalom. I am this this peace and this total well-being, this kingdom that that I'm proclaiming among you. This is the shalom of God for you. And this Galilean is uh, crucified and and rejected as a heretic. And then he raises from the dead. And then he raises for himself a church 
who look to him and who now believe that Yahweh sending his son, Jesus, Jesus actually being Yahweh in this Trinitarian framework of understanding God, that Jesus is the culmination of shalom. And in Jesus and in this inauguration of the kingdom that he came, shalom anew and shalom in full is on the table for those who would believe in him. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is the shalom of God. All the intent and good order of creation is found in Jesus. I am, I am, I am. The way things were designed to be lived, the life that God has ordered, this this invitation to shalom that's been on the table, that the law was only a type and shadow of, that the sacrificial system only vaguely pointed to, Jesus, I am, he says, the way. I am the truth. I am all that the law and the prophets were pointing to, the shalom of God. And do you know what the invitation of the gospel is? And when we say yes to the gospel, do you know what we're saying yes to? We're saying yes to the shalom of God invading our lives and overthrowing this reign of chaos. We're saying yes, like we looked at last week, to another ruler, to another reign, to another Lord, to the intended Lord that we were created for. But we're saying yes to this good shepherd who he in himself is shalom. But we're also saying yes to this journey of faith and this pilgrimage toward the final and irreversible shalom of the life of the world to come. This is faith in Jesus. It's looking to the good shepherd and it's, it's declaring our allegiance to him and it's walking in step with him and it's saying yes to him, whatever it costs. And it's this journey of faith, this life of the Christian faith that is pilgrimage toward eternal shalom. Shalom in its fullest sense. Shalom that was lost and ruptured and wrecked in the garden. A new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. This is the shalom that's on the table for the people of God. And this is what Jesus fulfilled among us. Jesus the, the skin, the meat, the substantiation of God's shalom and saying yes to him is a yes to the reign of Yahweh anew and yes to this pilgrimage into shalom that will forever be ours. Amen? Yahweh, Jesus, is shalom, the shalom of God. Um, so as we dis, uh, prepare to dismiss this morning, let's chat through one more discussion question, uh, process what this means for us, process what we've just heard. Uh, what stands out to you from our study of God's dealing with Israel, the giving of Torah, and the promise of shalom? What are you walking away with? What stands out to you? Nuance that, talk about that, and then we'll pick this thing up here uh, in just a couple minutes. All right, enjoy, go. All right, everybody. As we wrap up, Let me leave us with one clarifying thought. Um, We've been asking this question, the good life. What is the good life? Okay, it's okay. Well, the good life, when we look at it, uh, which I'm sure a lot of you talked about at your tables, but the good life is, is the life of the new creation to come in the here and now. The life is communion with Yahweh here and now. The life is Jesus and commitment to Jesus and communion with Jesus. And then the other stuff like joy and peace and all that, that those are byproducts. But when we have him, he is the good life and we have all that we need. Amen. 
I think that needs to be clarified because we can grapple and we can reach after the stuff and the byproducts. But the good life is found in communion and covenant relationship with Yahweh. So with that, let's stand and uh, let's go out from here. Living under the canopy and under the reign of the Lord Jesus. So Lord, would you send us out of here with life and with wind in our sails and with communion with you? I pray that as we go from here and we return to the four corners of the city, may we be uh, people who live life tethered to you, where everything we do is, is done with you and for you and through you. May we be the people who know the Lord. May we be the people who keep in step with you. And, and in doing so, uh, in living under covenant relationship with you, let us be the people who manifest the good life, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of it, God. And in doing so, we ask that the world would see that we are your disciples and that there is a Savior who has ransomed all creation and who is leading us into pure and eternal shalom in the world to come. Make it so, Lord. We pray that you protect us, give us grace and peace in everything we do this week. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the young adults said, Amen. Amen.